Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, with unwavering devotion to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. I'm so grateful that you've decided to join me on my modest little channel, uh, on which I think you'll soon discover the internet's best and profoundest conversations are furtively being held. If, like me, you find these conversations engrossing, stimulating, enlightening, or just enjoyable, please do consider subscribing to this channel and becoming a member of our growing community, um, in which you'll play a very important part. Today's conversation is one to which, since first we made contact a few weeks ago, I've been eagerly looking forward. My guest is the esteemed Svetlana Slapshik, a woman of boundless courage, indomitable strength, and prodigious intellect, by whose mere presence on this channel, I must say, I'm very deeply honored. Any attempt of mine to list all of Svetlana's accomplishments would be futile. A brief biological sketch will, for now, suffice, upon which will doubtless enlarge in the dialogue to come. Svetlana was born in the year 1948 in Belgrade, Serbia. Now retired, she was a professor of anthropology, philology, Balkanology, and gender studies. She was editor-in-chief of Pro Femina, a quarterly for women's studies and cultural issues, to which many people subscribed. Since 1968, she has been active in fighting for human rights and the freedom of speech, causes for which, so long as the flames of justice and liberty flicker in the human heart, will always be fighting. To list the innumerable countries and universities at which she's lectured would, I fear, strain your patience, dear listener and friend. And so with that, I'd like to extend my warmest welcome to you, Svetlana and to thank you for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. So I want to begin uh, with your birth and your childhood. Now, the state of Slovenia, in which you spent much of your career and presently reside, was created in the year 1945, the very same year in which World War II came to its end. It didn't yet enjoy the status of an independent nation, for which it would have to wait another half century or so, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, of which Yugoslavia was a part. Three years after Slovenia's founding in 1948, you were born. You took your place on this wondrous stage of existence at a time of unprecedented upheaval and change. So can you describe to us what it was like to grow up in this age and in this environment? Well, I was born in Belgrade, so I am not a Slovenian, as many nationalists here would like to underline. I'm a foreigner here in Slovenia. But uh, when I was born in Belgrade, it was a really turbulent year, um, very, very much for many people. Uh, some of them uh, I knew, and I found out their stories much later. Um, at the time when I was born, uh, 
my father's friend gave me the name Svetlana, which is uh, the name of uh, Stalin's daughter. And I was in fashion for six months because in uh, June the same year, Yugoslavia um, cut off her link to Stalin and became a totally independent country. Uh, it was a dangerous time. Uh, Soviet troops were on Yugoslav borders. And at the same time, the Communist Party of Yugoslavia was uh, executing a rather massive um, picking, of, uh, picking up of people who were considered dangerous or sympathizers of the Soviets. So many people went to jail and then to isolated island in the Adriatic Sea. It was a turmoil, really a real turmoil. And the guy who gave me the name also went to the jail and then to the island because he was a Soviet uh, uh, sympathizer. Uh, many years later, we discovered all that. So I came out of fa fashion when it comes to my name. But the youth in the socialist Yugoslavia in, in its uh, main city, which is Belgrade, was rather interesting. Uh, first of all, uh, I was born into a poor family. Uh, and uh, when I was four, my mother and uh, my father divorced. This was the time when uh, post-traumatic syndrome was not known. And my father was obviously suffering from it. He spent uh, uh, four years in concentration camps in Germany, Poland, France, um, Ukraine, many places. He was an officer and uh, he tried to escape several times. So um, he came back with, with many traumas and uh, it just couldn't last. Anyway, I, uh, I was growing up in a family of three women, my grandmother, my mother and me. It was a female family. <laughs> And uh, in which my grandmother was a uh, uh, father. She was severe and precise, and my mother was kind of fluttering around. And myself, I was the happiest child uh, in the world because uh, my mom was working uh, in a publishing house for children's book. And first I would hear all the books uh, when my mom was working on uh, lecturing during the night with her friend, and then I would get the book. So I was listening to the book and then reading books, and books simply defined my, my, my uh, childhood. Uh, so uh, I didn't feel much being poor and not having possibilities, because there were possibilities. They, there, were, uh, there was this uh, health protection and uh, uh, schooling system. And uh, when I finished with my primary school, the teacher sent me to the classical uh, gymnasium or, or high school where I spent eight years and well that's the place where I met some of the elite children from the elite of Belgrade but there was no much difference I, I was there because I, uh, I came there without problem and it was a great time because uh, there was no ideology at all would you believe it my time in in fact we were quite spared from any impact of ideology when we were kids. We had, uh, for some curious reason, uh, we had for free all the Disney products. <laughs> so, so cartoons and, and comics and everything. That was my education. I loved it. Everybody loved it. Uh, it there is a story that Disney was friendly with Tito. 
for some reason. But anyway, it was really good because we were totally spared of any impact of the Communist Party, uh, except for the last year of my schooling when I was 18. And then uh, um, there was this uh, person who came to the high school and invited all the pupils to uh, enlist in the Communist Party. And there was one remark that was me, of course, and I said, we, were, we are too young to join the party. And the consequence was that all of my colleagues entered the party except me. I was not accepted. So that was good. I never uh, entered the Communist Party. I was free from that. And uh, I didn't consider it any problem at all. Uh, and my family, my, my two women, my grandmother and my mom, were Yugoslavs by definition, non-ideological at all. And my grandmother came with my uh, mom, uh, came to Belgrade uh, in May uh, 41, after the attack of Germans to, uh, to Yugoslavia. Her husband in the city of Osijek, which is today in Croatia, there were Serbs from Croatia. So they uh, came to Belgrade. Uh, because the German soldiers saved them from the Ustashi, from the Croatian nationalists. But unfortunately, my grandfather uh, was tortured for a long time and then publicly executed in, in Osijek. And my grandmother had a very specific commentary on that. All the men are fools and all the war are fools. And what the men uh, like mostly are the wars. So <laughs> get away from men and get away from wars. <laughs> that was her. She was a kind of spontaneous feminist. She had a very precise idea of, of women's freedom and emancipation and so on. And the new ideology, the socialist ideology, was based on that. So if you think of the largest group that accepted socialism in Yugoslavia, and especially socialism after the breakup with uh, Stalin, it was women who got voting uh, possibility, uh, free, uh, uh, free education, free health protection, abortion, um, divorce, everything, everything, everything was available for women. And of course, possibility of career, equal payment, uh, one to, to two years or sometimes even three years of uh, postpartum uh, um, free, free time, stuff like that. So, you know, when, when, when Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia collapsed and some American feminists came to teach us about women's rights, it was funny. They had like three weeks of free time after birth. <laughs> and we had four years if we wanted paid. So um, there were some misunderstand, uh, misunderstanding, lo lots of it. Anyway, my youth was, I would say, happy. And uh, we went to the sea uh, in summer. Uh, and even in the uh, 70s, uh, uh, 60s, 70s, my uh, um, stepfather, my mother married when, remarried when I was eight. She asked me if I would allow it. I said, okay, so she remarried. And uh, I had a stepfather who was a film producer. He was never employed, but worked from film to film. And so in the early youth, I was looking uh, at shoot, shooting of, of great co-production spectacles like uh, Jean Marais jumping from one horse to another. He never had a uh, replacement. He was all 
he was doing all by himself and stuff like that. I was very familiar with the film production, with the comics and with the cheap novels. That was the taste of my stepfather. <laughs> so we shared our love to detective stuff, science fiction and even Western novels. Okay, but that was that that was aside. That was uh, that was kind of sport. So that my stepfather and my mom managed to uh, build a little house on the Adriatic coast, and we were going there for thirty-three years. And in fact, when they went to, to when they retired, they spent most of the time there. It it was a lovely place. It was a lovely life, modest but absolutely charming. And at the beginning of the war, of course. Um, the locals uh, made uh, clear to my mom that uh, she is not desired anymore. So she left the house and we never saw it again. Uh, the fact is that exactly 50 years after she was threatened by death in Osijek, she was again threatened <laughs> to be killed in Croatia, in this little place in, on Adriatic Sea. But uh, uh, never, but absolutely never, my mother or my grandmother would say anything against the Croats. Mm. They thought that it was about fools who want the war and nothing else. It's not national at all. And uh, even later, the rest of my life, of her life, my mom was always wanting to go to Croatia. She loved Croatia. I love Croatia. <laughs> I have no problems at all. Uh, so it was a very specific kind of living, as you see. In the 68, um, uh, right from, from the um, class, uh, classical high school, I went to the revolution. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I was a complete uh, gaga about Marxism. Um, that's the difference uh, uh, which, which was made between my, my colleagues and myself. And I founded a group of three, my two colleagues and me, and we declared ourselves Platonists in the middle of Marxist, Marxist crazy of young revolutionaries. <laughs> so you declared yourself Platonists in a sea of Marxists, is that correct? Yes. Oh, <laughs> we were even, we were mostly, almost beaten several times for that. In the I, I would, <laughs> beaten might be the, the most gentle treatment you <laughs> could hope to receive. But we had fun. And uh, in fact, we um, um, we managed to, to make a student's periodical, which was called Frontisterion in modern Greek and in ancient Greek, it means the place for thinking. And it's a, it's a motive from Aristophanes' uh, uh, clouds. Uh, there's a basket in which uh, Socrates uh, hangs from the ceiling and uh, thinks in this basket, that's Frontisterion. <laughs> So we were great fun, and we used um, ancient names for Tito, for Kati, so on. Um, um, the periodical was uh, banned in the print, <laughs> but we managed to steal uh, several issues. And then, of course, uh, there was a trial um, in Belgrade against the student leaders who were from faculty of the School of Philosophy, my school. I was studying classical studies, of course, what else, ancient studies. And uh, uh, I appeared, I should appear as a witness. And I came to the judge um, and he was uh, questioning me. 
uh, as a preparation for the trial. And uh, it lasted for some 12 hours. Uh, the judge at the end was totally <laughs> down. I was in very good mood. And the lawyer was um, looking at the whole scene. Uh, and I think that was my one of my best lectures in my whole life. I was, I was proving with philological arguments that what we wrote down was not it was not Tito, in fact, but not somebody else. I mean, I was I was really making fun of the court. So and you were said, you were about how old at this time? Uh, well, I was twenty. But no, twenty-two. Sorry, no, twenty-one. Twenty-one. <laughs> okay, I was twenty-one. So uh, I was finally accepted by the Marxist wing, but uh, uh, with all my faults, ideological mistakes. But uh, I wasn't accepted as a, as a, um, to to be presented at the court as a witness because I was too risky. I, I could uh, I could make a public laugh or or something else. So they didn't even invite me. Uh, so I managed to to go uh, along. But then uh, a year later, when I organized a strike uh, at the uh, School of Philosophy, I was beaten by the secret police uh, in the night when I was coming home. Um, they broke, they, uh, broke my arcade. I still have the scar <laughs> and so on. And of course, my academic uh, career was finished. And I knew it. I was the best student of the um, Belgrade University in 71, but my career was finished. <laughs> I couldn't aspire for a place yeah. uh, uh, at the university. Uh, so I went to an institute for literature, which was a kind of a reservoir for fallen intellectuals who would not uh, suit the communist uh, standards. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Did you consider at this time abandoning, abandoning um, Eastern Europe entirely and in, in going to the West? Oh, definitely, but I didn't have a passport. They took away my passport <laughs> in 68, and I got it once in uh, 73, and then it was taken away from me in 75, and uh, uh, then I was traveling, and it was taken from me once again in 88. So, unfortunately, I, uh, most of my friends could not do the Afghanistan travel and the rest, or uh, flee to the United States, and... Uh, uh, look for the academic career, nothing of that. Um, so so I, just, I, I just want to interrupt briefly because there yeah, is, yeah. now I, I, opened, I opened the floor to, to your um, <laughs> recounting of your history and it, there is so much in that history. I don't think you even realize <laughs> just how striking some parts of your biography are. First, I just want to return back to what you said about your name. Now, we shouldn't take that lightly. The fact that you were named for Stalin's daughter, of whom history really has no serious record. It's, it's really interesting. I was uh, recently reading a book by Milan Kundra, uh, the, the Unbearable Lightness of Being. And uh, Kundra, he's an interesting writer, but and he takes a lot of deviations into different ideas, political and social yeah. and um, romantic. Yes. And yeah. at one point he talks about Stalin and he talks about specifically Stalin's son. Now I didn't do any research uh, mm -hmm. into Stalin's son, but it struck me because you think of these um, 
these dictators, these despots, these almost inhumane men, and they seem almost, um, uh, well, almost incapable of the, the ordinary functions of man, which is to, to reproduce themselves <laughs> and create a progeny. Uh, you know, I, once I realized that Stalin had a son, it sort of humanizes him a little bit more. And that's a, a strange feeling. But, but Kundra talks about Stalin's son and the fact that he was this sort of intermediate figure between the very lowest of the low, because he was basically abandoned by Stalin and also had some claim to a kind of royalty, a Marxist royalty in the Soviet <laughs> Union. And I think ultimately, as Kundra describes it, he he dies in a in a German concentration camp in his attempt to escape through the barbed, the electric, the electrified uh, barbed wire. So I, I, I'm just um, sort of tossed head over heels now that you you mentioned the fact that your name is is sort of an homage to Stalin's daughter, of whom I had no awareness. And with my recent readings of Kundra, it, it really kind of creates a an interesting link <laughs> between the two. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, and and then beyond that, you can comment on that if if you desire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'd I, love to. <laughs> yeah, but then but then after that, I want to know if your situation, in which your grandmother and your mother and you yourself were living together, if that was somewhat common in the post-war era, I would assume, because of the massive casualties suffered not only by civilians, but of course, the, the conscripted men, both in the Soviet okay. Union and in Germany and in all of Europe, um, probably left a lot of families shattered. The fact that your father, your biological father, survived four concentration camps. Yeah, more than that. Probably more years. than that. Sure, sure. <laughs> in multiple countries is astonishing, but uh, mm -hmm. I would assume, I, I know based on the figures that that many men, if we could count him lucky, and I prob probably he would not count himself that lucky, but many, many men perished mm -hmm. and okay. left families mm -hmm. kind of devoid of, a, of, that, of that paternal figure. So mm -hmm. I want you maybe to, to comment just briefly on the relationship of Stalin Stalin's daughter and and you and your name and the fact that you were sort of this apostate from Marxism. <laughs> I wonder if there was, I wonder if your apostasy was uh, I don't know somewhat predetermined. The fact that you were named and you didn't choose this name and it was sort of thrust upon you and your later resistance to the the Stalin ideology. Uh, I wonder mm -hmm. if there's something in that. And then maybe you can comment on the general. Um, phenomenon of of these sort of matriarchal led families out of necessity because of the the, the loss of so much life well uh, it, it's linked to my to my father and to his character um yes he was an officer he he had this career uh in front of him and then it was cut down by the war and uh, he was liberated by russians and then he decided to go with the Russian army ahead to Berlin. He wanted to, <laughs> to destroy Berlin. <laughs> that, was his, that was his plan. But then he came with the Soviet army. He came to the Polish city, which is at, at the frontier uh, with Germany, close to the frontier. That's Bydgoszcz. Um, and he saw it was just uh, freed from, from Germans. 
and he saw a mountain of dead bodies of Germans on the shore of, of the river, which runs through Bitgosh. And uh, he had a kind of uh, uh, total transformation. He said, I had enough. And he came back home. Otherwise, he would go to Berlin. But he came back home. And he was a, a hard-headed person. Uh, when he came back home, he, he took again uh, the officer's position. And then he remarked that uh, soldiers in the, in, the, um, in the barracks have uh, weaker meals than the officers. And he protested. Of course, he lost his position immediately. <laughs> So he was out of the game when this uh, uh, breaking up with Stalin came and he could not be blamed for anything. He was out already. So it, it was, in, in, a, in a way, it saved him. So I inherited some of his um, mental co construct with this hard-headed orientation and so on. And I wasn't, I wasn't the privileged because I, my name was Svetlana. Not at all. That was okay. Um, but uh, my mom and uh, my grandmother, when they heard that my name would be Svetlana, they went to the church and christened me and gave me a Christian name of Natalia, <laughs> which I never used. <laughs> so just in case mom and grandmother did their own thing, <laughs> just in case the situation changes, I have another name to use. Okay, so that's this story. Uh, uh, and, and let uh, me ask you: Were your uh, your mother and grandmother very religious? Do you remember them? No, there being so? Absolutely not. My grandmother was a real natural atheist. She hated priests. She she would give me an advice when uh, we went uh, to the market uh, on Sunday morning. We would go to the market to to shop, and uh, she would tell me, "If you see a priest, uh, you uh, say." Uh, I kiss your hand, but you never kiss his hand. It's not hygienic. <laughs> oh, <goodness>. <laughs> My grandma. Pity she wasn't born into the time of French um, encyclopedia in the 18th century. She would be perfect. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, she would be side by side by side with Voltaire and, and Diderot. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And so also, she she sounds like a remarkable figure. Uh, <laughs> Just as all of your family members are, but but do you think that your grandmother had the largest influence on you and your thinking as a child? Oh, we were quarreling all the time, but she had this influence. I became feminist very early without uh, realizing it, <laughs> so I was there already. And my mom was a, a much lighter character, and uh, uh, in her old age, uh, she uh, started imagining that she was religious. So we were we were making fun of her. But uh, she was going to the church sometimes, and uh, she had some feelings. But okay, we, we don't uh, we don't uh, hate her for that. On the contrary, anyway, uh, religion was not an item. Uh, communism was not an item. Although both of my uh, female um, family members were really up to um, and ready to voluntary work, uh, and I remember my grandmother with a gas mask going to the courses to teach women about uh, all kinds of things, especially to make them write and read. And also when I was very young, I didn't understand clearly, but then later I understood from time to time, um, a, a younger woman from the villages around Osijek or Slavonia generally would come to 
our place and uh, stay for a day or two and then they would come back uh, with some gifts and so on. Uh, my mother would accept young women who came to Belgrade for abortion and then she would take care of them and uh, write letters to their uh, relatives and parents that she came to visit her and stuff like that <laughs> and covering up the whole thing. So. She was, in that sense, she was a kind of a feminist saint. She was helping all kinds of women which were coming to our home. And also when I was uh, kind of four or five years, she told me, you never repeat what, what you heard in, in your, at your home. And uh, I, will, uh, I, will, um, give you, I will give you the credit of being valuable woman for that. And I was so proud that I really never, never repeated the things I heard at home. And uh, women were coming to her, they were smoking and drinking coffee and discussing all kinds of problems, sexual, fam familiar problems, kids, and so on and so on. It was and a kind ask, of... At, at yeah. that time, was the, yeah. vision, was the vision of a woman doing those things, drinking coffee and smoking, was that thought to be um, inappropriate or untraditional? Oh, not at all. First of all, uh, in the city centers before the war, it was very fashionable and the elite ladies would uh, uh, smoke. That was one of the signs of modernity coming from Hollywood films, of course. And on the other hand, traditionally in the Balkans, women, yes, sit together, uh, they smoke and they drink coffee even today in Bosnia. Hmm. That's the image of an old woman in Bosnia, smoking and drinking coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The image of any cultivated person in Europe or in America. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have to ask, though, it's usually thought that in the absence of religion or, or belief in a religious doctrine, mm -hmm. communism is supposed to occupy that place. Uh, some might even equate communism to being in some ways religious. And in many ways, I think that that uh, association is apt, for instance, Instead of the Bible, you have a communist manifesto. Instead of a providence, you have dialectical materialism in the certain march of history. Instead of God, you have a, you know, a Zeus-looking Karl Marx, I think, who actually modeled himself off of images of busts of... <laughs> no, he Jupiter. didn't. Everybody looked like that. <laughs> Everybody um, was... So, awesome. <laughs> so, but you describe your, your family as both rejecting traditional religion, let's call it Christian religion, I would assume maybe Eastern mm -hmm. Orthodox or even yeah, Catholic. Of course, Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox. Christian, but, Eastern but then, Orthodox. Yeah, but then also rejecting that by which religion was ideologically supposed to be replaced, mm -hmm. yeah. which was the communism. So, so kind of where were you rooted? Where did you find, or where did your, your mother and grandmother, where did they find their... Um, their solidity, I would say, maybe in, in the, the world of morals or in, or in ethics, where, where were they finding this? In themselves, really, in the life, <laughs> as they would, they would name it. They were uh, totally in, uh, in the belief that uh, life is uh, worth fighting for, that love is worth fighting for, but a decent love, the real love, stuff like that. So they were, yes, ethically, if you want to, to, to define, need to define it, it, it's difficult, but I would, I would. Uh, uh, now, I'm going to interrupt. 
I'm going to interrupt. I apologize for my yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but but as a very precocious girl uh -huh. as you were, did you feel like that was intellectually satisfactory to claim as a, as your mother or grandmother did that love is worth fighting for? Well, that's that's fine. It's it's a noble it's a noble sentiment, um, and one with which I resonate. But but did you feel like there has to be something beneath that. I need to explore that a little bit. And maybe you found that in the classics. Maybe you found that in Platonic theory or Aristotelian virtue. Um, but did, did ever that it occur to you that maybe that there's something insipid about that mm -hmm. uh, espousal of those beliefs? Uh, well, of course, but I was in, in the books from my early youth. So I knew that my mom and my grandmom were in fact ugly and fluffy and loving and warm. <laughs> and that was enough. <laughs> I didn't ask for more. Uh, I had my world in the books. Uh, and uh, very curious uh, choice of books, but my mother insisted that I read Anglo-Saxon uh, children's literature. She thought that that was the most appropriate for a young girl. So, so uh, I was marked from the early age by Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland, and that's my literature even today. When I feel depressed, I go to Winnie the Pooh and found my um, true ground there, philosophical ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is there is great sage-like wisdom in, in Mr. Pooh. Absolutely. <laughs> I, were, it were be, that should not be overlooked. <laughs> uh, the Tao of Pooh and uh, different books. <laughs> yes, yes, the Tao, yes, the Tao of Pooh. <laughs> and also uh, the collections of books and so on. And then when I grew up a little bit, uh, I was totally in Shakespeare. Uh, I was reading Shakespeare like crazy all the summer of vacations, school vacations, and so on and so on. So I was with my book, and that was my world. And uh, my good relations with mom and grandma uh, was in the fact that, that they would encourage me, encourage me to go there, not to stay with them. On the contrary, my grandmother had the idea that I have to study to make my career. And then perhaps if I really want to think about marriage, <laughs> so, but not necessarily. So <laughs> that was her idea. And on the other hand, when you, when you mentioned the communism and the religion, it's, it's an extremely interesting question. Uh, today we live in a world of nationalisms, ex exclusion, uh, different groups and, and the whole uh, unbelievable amount of uh, uh, stupidity. <laughs> Let's face it, when it comes to define groups and to define human. Uh, communism has one advanced, I must say, and that is uh, you believe in Marx or in uh, manifesto, whatever you want from the Marxist ideology, because you read something, not because you were born as something <laughs> and something, not that you were born in such a group with such history and so on and so, such myths and so on and so on. No, on the contrary, you are qualified to enter uh, the group uh, if you read something. So you have to read and write. This is the basic demand of communism. And it's not bad at all if uh, we were insisting on reading and uh, writing today maybe the world would be different so communism has this advantage of not classifying people by gender nation and race that's really important uh, and uh, much much later when i started to read uh, 
this literature, uh, I found out uh, really, really, uh, especially today, extremely convincing uh, arguments and analysis concerning capitalism. So uh, it's not bad, not at all. The system is bad, but the literature is not. And living in literature, if you want, uh, being in, in the books from the early youth, uh, I got my myopia from there. I got my ankles, which are hard as dinosaurs, <laughs> because I was <laughs> uh, reading, uh, lying on the stomach, and so on and so on. Yes, but uh, these texts uh, uh, remain, and sometimes they are even more important than uh, uh, the knowledge I can get on the internet or in the library. So uh, there is something about reading and uh, literacy that is so important. And that was the main quality uh, in, in communism. If you can imagine millions, hundreds of millions of people in Soviet Union, which in fact had a few possibilities to express themselves. And one of the possibilities to express themselves was to read. Uh, <laughs> there was no limit to reading. So reading everything they wanted, uh, reading a huge choice of books, reading and writing as a consequence of that, being capable of writing, everything else, else was under censorship. But literature was not. Literature was largely acceptable and largely obtainable. So there are some qualities <laughs> that definitely uh, formed me as, as a character. Yeah, and I... Agree in the fact that um, communism does have a few things to recommend it. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. claiming mm -hmm. myself a communist, <laughs> but uh, not yet. Maybe at the end of this <laughs> conversation, my my views will have shifted dramatically. I don't yeah. suppose that they will, but um, there there are a few things on which I want to focus. Uh, the first is is the the story that yeah. communism tells. Now, mm -hmm. we as human beings are, are narrative-seeking species. We we need we need stories. Um, I think it's quite fundamental to our very being. And communism, for uh, all of its um, shortcomings, perhaps in other areas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. does tell a good story. It it, mm -hmm. it kind of speaks to a very noble impulse inside of man mm -hmm. that might not be recognized in this world, but um, is certainly one for which and to which uh, men and women can aspire. Mm -hmm. it, you also mentioned the fact that it's a highly literate uh, philosophy or economic social theory or what have you, or religion, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded um, of the name by which my own uh, people go, the Jewish mm -hmm. people. <laughs> I consider myself yeah. a semi-Semite. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that is the people of the book. So there's an interesting connection <laughs> there. You talk yes. about communism yes. really appealing to a, a very literate um, class or, or, or group of people, let's say. Uh, of mm -hmm. course, they, they would mm -hmm. disregard the idea of class, but it's almost as though it's a philosophy for people of the book. It is for people of the book, just as <laughs> yeah. Judaism was for Definitely. the Jews. The Jews were considered the people of the book, a very highly literate group of people. Um, and just a third point, which is 
the universe, the universality uh, toward which uh, communism endeavors. Of course, it never quite achieves that. It's always, it seems very hyper-nationalized. You think of Cambodian communism and Vietnamese communism and Chinese communism and Russian communism. Um, so yeah, the it, it's supposed to collapse those those distinctions of nation, um, mm -hmm. region, oh, yes. but it Definitely. never quite does. And, and of course, it tends toward uh, the, the reduction of a society into a very mm -hmm. thin top level of elites, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the vanguard, who are merely supposed to to bring forth the revolution so that, you know, all classes and all government can then wither away and of course the the immiserated masses and it always seems to be stuck at that point and they never quite get beyond that where where you have that upper upper elite and the the impoverished uh masses below them um, i you know that's a lot there that i just blurted out but those are just some of my thoughts that i that i conjured up as you were as you were talking maybe I'll ask you one thing that's a little bit firmer, mm -hmm. and that is to give me your thoughts about the importance of women in uh, burgeoning philosophico-religious movements. You talked about women having a, a very important role to play in the early years of, of um, the socialistic movements across Eastern Europe, right? Or at least in in Serbia. Um, oh, in Yugoslavia, you mean? Or in Yugoslavia. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. again, I, I draw a another connection back to the Judeo-Christian religion and uh, and that tradition. And mm -hmm. in the early ages of Christianity, well, by whom was the religion most successfully and indefatigably uh, forwarded? And in many cases, that was women. Women were instrumental in spreading mm -hmm. the faith throughout the, the Roman Empire um, and making it the dominant religion of all of Europe, uh, still as it is today, in a smaller sense, but, but still. So uh, why is it that women specifically have this natural aptitude at, at promulgating these very powerful ideas and, yeah. and bringing them to their fuller fruition? Well, it's not natural. It's culture. <laughs> Women in uh, patriarchy, which is the ruling system even today, and it lasts some 10,000 years at least, maybe a little more, um, they were responsible for um, caring about uh, uh, everything that is not movable for the moment, and that is small children, old people, and themselves. The heroes were all, always somewhere away. So uh, they were responsible for narrative, for education, for literacy sometimes in some societies, some higher societies. Uh, they were the bearers of narratives. So when Christianity came with its uh, um, really unbelievable twist in, in communication from, from the ancient world, which is the possibility of praying without voice. That's the basic thing. Uh, praying without voice. Everything in antiquity was vocal. You had to say. Uh, when you communicate with gods, you, you speak to them. 
uh, you speak when you read <laughs> and you speak all the time <laughs> but with christianity there comes the possibility that you communicate with your god without speaking in yourself well that is a typical women's position <laughs> so of course they took took it on of course they changed the world with that of course they were crucial in, in transferring christianity and uh, familiar familiarizing with with it um but uh, there's another element too and uh, that is that uh, uh, christianity in in a very pragmatic social sense gave women more rights and more presentation and more presence uh, which of course is disputed we know that uh, in fact for mary caused uh, much of trouble between uh, catholicism and orthodoxy and so on uh, it's not her fault but uh, uh, there is this, this line in which gender really uh, clashes clashes with with the christianity and the damage is still visible unfortunately so yes women got something introduced something transferred something and then lost it which which is a typical moment of women's history generally they conquer something they have something they have a value and then it was it's taken from them uh, but le let me go to 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 a detail that that is very characteristic for my youth and my family and that is this deep sympathy uh, with jews uh, first of all, Serbs and Jews and Roma were at the same position at the beginning of the war. Uh, my grandmother ha had her best friend, and it was a Jewish lady who was living with them in Osijek, while my grandfather was building the home for this woman, which was called Fanny. <laughs> and uh, uh, Fanny was her, her best friend, and it was a woman from, and from her she learned how to be a lady, how to wear, how to um make up how to behave everything everything so she adored her and when they moved to zagreb uh this jewish family remained in fact our family my mother and my uh, and myself went to zagreb to visit our jewish family <laughs> so it was a very very intimate link and also the best friend of my mother was a jewish woman uh, and I adored her. It was for me. It was another role model. I must say, she was very cool, very rational, very pre very precise, very cynical. <laughs> she was a real model of of an independent woman who didn't want to move with her husband to Israel, but remain in Yugoslavia with her daughter. She never married, and she was a partisan during the war. That's how she she survived. She was in the partisan guerrilla army. She fought, uh, and the rest of 28 Jewish girls who were in the cl same classroom with my mom were killed in Yasinovac or in Auschwitz. <coughs> so this love, <coughs> this relation with, Jew with Jewish people was really deep. And at the end of her life, my grandmother, without us knowing it, went to the rabbi of Belgrade and asked if she could be transferred into the Jewish religion. And he answered, that's a bit too late, <laughs> but, and we don't do that, and so on, and so on. Well, the real patriarchal answer. <laughs> so she didn't become a Jew, but that was her wish at the end of the life. She, she felt close only to the Jewish religion. That's huh. something that expressed her. I don't know why. So that's <coughs> an element which, which really explains so many things for me. This love for Jews uh, is is still on. I I still have a contact with the 
daughter of my mother's friend. <laughs> my mother and her friend are dead now, and so on. We still have connections. We still think of each other. So it's it's an it's a phenomenon which was of course caused by the context, but you know there's something else in it, something deeper. Yeah, something something extraordinarily deep. Mm -hmm. um, so many directions in which we could go. Uh, maybe just because you mentioned the Lysistrata and Aristophanes a little while ago, and we're talking about the role of women in the earliest years after the death of Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could explain for us um, what sexual politics might have been like in the classical world. So, of course, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we think of the great uh, dramatists of Athens, we think of Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, mm -hmm. but I think the best treatment of the the actual world in which these, you know, fifth and fourth century men lived and the general, the broader population lived is to be found in Aristophanes. Um, the oh, <laughs> yeah, always leave it, leave it to the comedians to, yeah. to really <laughs> illustrate exactly how life is being lived in all of its glories and all of its blemishes. <laughs> so, um, you know, his, his work, his great work, the Lysistrata might be the best example uh, during which, as I remember, the the women withhold sex mm -hmm. from the men until the conclusion of their hostilities, their wars, and it reminds me of what your grandmother said: "You, <laughs> the two <laughs> banes, the two banes of uh, existence are men and war." <laughs> right? yeah. so it almost sounds like if she wasn't classically read, she was um, Aristophanic in her understanding of of the world and its problems. Um, but but maybe you can put on your your classicist hat and mm -hmm. describe for us a little bit about uh, a little bit how the sexual politics and relations worked in Athens, let's say, which we consider to be the height of Western civilization. Perhaps mm -hmm. it wasn't so high for women. And maybe contrast that with another prominent city state like Sparta, where generally women are considered to have been a little bit freer in some senses because of you know, the demands placed on the militaristic men who are always sort of uh, training for their upcoming battles um, and um, preparing to to <laughs> check the helots at every possible point and ensure that there was no uprising so 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 maybe you can describe that that situation and relationship a little bit there are so many books and, and my um, preferred is eva coyle's uh, the reign of palos <laughs> which I reread again and again. Um, but I don't share all of her views on Aristophanes. Aristophanes obviously uh, was an intellectual in the sense that he was the member of the club of intellectuals which would meet every day absolutely in the democratic institutions of Athens and of course at the Agora. And they would uh, uh, shut themselves out and discuss the issues. And one of the issues was definitely the position of women. Uh, the position of women was important because, uh, uh, first of all, uh, men were so privileged that they had liberty to discuss it. <laughs> and the other thing is that uh, there was a social situation in which obviously women felt differently about the war, although they didn't have any possible means to, to say it publicly. And we also should think about the fact that the theater was a democratic institution. 
it was not culture, <laughs> it was part of democracy. And all the Athenian citizens were present at, uh, at the plays, at the performances, and uh, uh, in fact, theater discussed in the theater topics which were not to be found in, in uh, uh, trials, in Agora and everywhere else in, in, the, uh, in the people's uh, uh, parliament and so on and so on. Uh, but only in theatre, and that is uh, private life, uh, uh, relation to the past, relation to gods, and so on and so on. So what Aristophanes does, and uh, comedy is uh, basically uh, older than the tragedy. <laughs> it's uh, uh, based on, on rituals which can be found uh, um, almost everywhere in the world, uh, even today. Um, comedy was showing uh, the, the the aim of comedy was showing people showing citizens uh the world as a glove which you turned upside down so you see all the stitches and all the elements of structure and you can laugh at them because the first face is elegant and, and uh, important and the other face is is laughable so uh what he wanted to to say is that the world can be uh turned upside down as in carnival of course the whole thing is about carnival and about masks and about presenting someone else and being in different states too by wine and so on and so on so these comedies in fact show the possibilities of democracy and they're represented as crazy and they do function as crazy but in fact they propose very very uh, precise and rational solutions. And in this sense, uh, Lysistrata, of course, is, is uh, absolutely one of the funniest. But there is another comedy which is much clearer in this political sense, that's women in the uh, popular parliament, in the people's parliament, in which women... What is, uh, the, Greek, what is the Greek title of that? I can never pronounce Ecclesiazuse. it. Ecclesiazuse. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I never even I, I never even venture its pronunciation for fear of failing. <laughs> Ecclesia is people's parliament in which everybody mm -hmm. has a voice and a presence if, if, if he wants, <laughs> and all mm -hmm. of them want, all of uh, male citizens want. So women prepare uh, to take power, but not by revolution or by sexual strike like in Lysistrata, but by making men vote them to take power. <laughs> so they learn. Uh, uh, male rhetoric, which they have at home anyway, the, the, their husbands blabber about it uh, all the time when they come back home. Uh, so they learn these uh, these tricks and uh, rhetorics, and then they uh, mask themselves as young, attractive men. And the, the effect in the parliament is double. One is they speak in a very conservative way, they are young and they are erotically attractive. So this is the young conservative guys are absolutely favorite even today in all the parliaments. <laughs> so men, in fact, yes, they do vote that uh, the power passes to women. And uh, they come home and uh, inform their women who were already back that uh, uh, they took the power. And there's an episode which explains everything. Of course, women introduce something that is absolutely similar to communism. Sorry. <laughs> it is a communism. It is the equal uh, division uh, and distribution of goods, of um, food, of everything else. And the uh, kids are uh, educated uh, by everybody. 
and so on and so on. This is the critics' uh, fable point, uh, feeble point. Most of the critics really fell uh, intellectually <laughs> at this point. And this is the moment in which there is a question of rights, right to sex by older women. <laughs> no classicist <laughs> has endured this exam. And there's this absolutely immortal scene in which uh, the new law is applied. And the new law says that <coughs> every woman <coughs> who is older has uh, the primary right to have sex with a young man. Yes. And there's a young man coming uh, to the window of his beloved. And suddenly an older woman appears and says, no, no, I have more rights. And then another, even more disfigured and older, says, no, it's my right. And then the third one, and then the fourth one, and they bring away the poor guy. <laughs> so, and of course, he's he's resisting the entire way and, and uh, expostulating that he shouldn't have to undergo this, this mishandling. So many classicists were scandalized by this scene, and the list of them is, is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> they couldn't bear the idea that something like that happens. Anyway, uh, the whole thing about uh, the, the, the ecclesiastes is that all the laws, in fact, are applied. Everybody's happy. And of course, they have a huge orgy at the end. That, that's the usual ending of Aristophanes' comedies. But the whole idea of, of provoking people so much, of provoking male audience, which is exclusively male, so much. <laughs> of course, uh, women are played by, by young men, by young, attractive men uh, on the scene. Uh, so much provocation, so much, uh, uh, if, you want, if you want, extreme radical thinking on the scene that, in fact, uh, representation and reception of Aristophanes in the Western culture is really meager. Uh, yeah, and I think, and I think and I think underemphasized. I think, uh -huh. Uh -huh. yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the tradition of Aristophanes, I think, uh -huh. is weaker than that of. Of, of some of the other great uh, dramatic tragedians, and of course that's assuming that we even still read these these great artists of the past. And I think increasingly they're less read, which probably is is sad uh, for someone like you who cherishes these things and has um, you know spent a lifetime, an academic lifetime, reading and rereading them because of their their bountiful um, wisdom and, and beauty. Um, do you think that? That during that time, do you think that Aristophanes better captured and reflected the the mores of of, Ath of Athenian Greek uh, life than did some of his dramatic counterparts, such as Euripides and Sophocles, who are a little bit more serious, maybe a little bit more conservative in their views? No, 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 no. I don't think so at all. Sophocles is a great fighter for democracy, for mm. me. Uh, maybe this is a lonely um, statement, but uh, uh, when you read Antigone, which is overread and overread <laughs> over the centuries, uh, it is a story about a young woman who cannot reach the right she thinks she could because she cannot uh, uh, approach any of the institutions which could change the law. She's completely out being a woman. And her fiancé, Hymon, uh, is uh, so shocked by the fact that she, that he cannot help her in her political ambition, in her political strive, kills he kills himself. That's a very strange situation in the Greek tra tragedy that the guy is committing a suicide 
for such reason. But then you think about Sophocles presenting this uh, tragedy to Athenians uh, by the trick uh, saying, well, this is in Thebes. <laughs> so you can imagine it. <laughs> but in fact, And can you, can you just momentarily explain to us why Thebes is important? It seems like in a lot of Greek uh, mythology, let's call it, or dramatic mm -hmm. presentation, mm -hmm. Thebes is used, right? We have, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in the Oedipus mythology. Why Thebes? It's extremely important <laughs> because uh, culturally, from the uh, prehistory on, uh, it has uh, uh, technological links and parallels with other Mediterranean uh, states and uh, technologies like the Egyptian one. It has uh, this unbelievably rich mythology, Boeotia as a whole, not only Thebes, and for Athenians, uh, Thebes were kind of, uh, uh, yes, they were um, conflictual, but on the other hand, they didn't have democracy. They had, they had kings and tyrants, and they didn't have democracy. So whatever you wanted to say, you could say through Thebes. <laughs> whatever you wanted to say to Athenians, made them think about their own democracy, their own system, was even more picturesque if you use Thebes. So it was it was one of the one of the strategies, dramatic strategies of many writers to do that. Of course, Euripides is something completely different. He goes into different parts of the world, but Sophocles is very typical in in insisting on the Theban cycle and representing the whole possibilities of monarchy and the transition from tyranny to, to, to democracy. That's something that was very, very educational for the Athenians. So yeah, in, and it, was, it served as yes. something of a trope. It would be like today uh, you would, in a, in a spirit of regional pride, right? I'm in Florida, so you might, you might speak yes disparagingly of New York, for instance, and you might talk about the way in which New Yorkers live and the way they, you know, prepare their meals or what have you, um, as opposed to the superior Floridian style or, you know, yeah, right. choose your state or vice versa. New Yorkers would yeah. probably say the very same about Floridians. And I'm sure in Europe, it, it's still similar. So yeah, Thebes was that trope. It was used as a sort of a contrast to describe a uh, maybe a culturally somewhat inferior <laughs> uh, place. Of course, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. The oceans are uh, considered less intelligent and so, stuff like that. So yes, stereotypes are there. They're playing their role. But in, in Lysistrata, uh, there's a moment which, which really destroys even some of the stereotypes. Uh, Spartan women come to Athenian women and they uh, concur to, to organize the sexual strike together. So, yes, the Spartan woman comes in her miniskirt, and she's athletic, and the Athenian women admire her for her body beauty and strength, but they have the same ideas. Hmm. So there's no, there's no problem in communicating. On the contrary, politically, they can do together so many things. You never forget that Aristophanes was already exposed to, 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 to inimical uh, actions between Athenian and Spartans and Euripides, uh, Euripides even more. And the Euripides uh, does not care about democracy so much, but he cares about women. And uh, if uh, Aristophanes can sound uh, conservative and feminist at the same time, Euripides is even crazier. He is misogynist and feminist at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, and probably the reason. Probably the reason he's the subject of, of Nietzsche's scorn in in his book, Absolutely. The Birth of Tragedy, um, and 
yeah, of course. And he was a great admirer. He was a great admirer of Aeschylus. But yeah, so maybe just maybe not too academic a tone. Can you can you talk a little bit about Euripides and that that oh, yes. strange tension between the misogynistic and the feminist? Yes, he, uh, as I said, he doesn't care so much about democracy. But uh, when you when you read Medea, and uh, uh, you 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 wonder. Uh, this mixture of very mythical uh, narratives and, and solutions, and on the other hand, the psychologically minutious dialogue between uh, Medea and her husband, and the reason for divorce, and the reason for marriage, <laughs> and the relation between men and, and women, and so on. This is absolutely up to date. But on the other hand, this other part, and that is the uh, total absence of culpability for Medea. For killing her children because she killed uh, children, her children, her sons, to destroy Jason's masculinity, his authority in the world, his masculine authority in the world. And uh, when you think about this, yes, well, this was written for another generation, not for us, not even for us, but for maybe for year 3000, if we are still alive, <laughs> if humans are alive, maybe they will understand Medea. So, other other plays are always based, Euripides plays are always based on a conflict of two persons, two characters, in a social situation which is recognizable, which is standard situation, lovers, mother and daughter, father and son, and so on and so on. You really analyze the situations which are so applicable today, which are so clear today, which you understand clearly. And you have to think about the context and the democracy uh, when reading Sophocles because you don't understand <laughs> so uh, so clearly. So uh, Euripides is uh, something uh, very universal for our time, which was not the situation, let's say, in the 18th century or in the in, in even before. But uh, today he's unbelievably actual. Yeah, and I agree. And uh, among the three tragedians, I would say Euripides is probably my favorite. And of course, I'm uh, highly regard Nietzsche. And when Nietzsche speaks so mm -hmm. contemptuously <laughs> of him, I feel like I need to reassess that affection that I hold for him. Um, but but still, I think you're right. I think Euripides, um, perhaps because he he brought in a a new angle. I think he brought forth you know, another actor onto the stage and really expanded the scope of the dramatic world, constrained though it still was, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. still broadened it significantly. And I think is the bridge that connects the, the classical uh, world of drama to the, to the present one. Uh, I recently read a book by Natalie Haynes. She's a, a British author and comedian of whom I'm a big uh, fan and mm -hmm. The title of her book was uh, Pandora's Jar. Of course, she uses the <laughs> yeah. etymological word instead of a, the box which we associate Pandora. Uh, she refers to it in her title uh, very shrewdly as, as a jar. And she lists all the secondary um, female figures in, in, in Greek uh, mythology, let's say. Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. The femme fatales like Medea and mm -hmm. Clytemnestra, or um, you know, the incomparable beauties like Helen or Penelope, with her, you know, um, uh, unwavering patience. So tell me, shifting from the, the playwrights to the to the women mm -hmm. about whom they wrote, mm -hmm. who is your favorite female character in Greek myth? 
I adore Penelope because she is a detective. She is a wise woman who knows how to cheat. <laughs> and she's cheating, obviously, in front of all the world and uh, the, the suitors. Uh, because she is uh, uh, de-weaving what she has <laughs> de-weaving uh, during day. And uh, she says it's a cover for Odysseus, uh, Ulysses' father when he dies. But uh, you don't bury people in wool. Wool is half alive, half dead. And in Jewish tradition, there's only linen which can be used for dead people. <laughs> so she's fooling everybody. Open. So it, it's, 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 it's deceitful yeah. on, on multiple levels. And I believe when she begins the, the burial shroud, her father-in-law isn't yet dead. No, 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 he's not. He's well alive and he's alive when Odysseus uh, came back. And the other thing is when Odysseus finally uh, comes back 20 years later, uh, she uh, wants to ask him all the impossible questions to, to check his identity. Everybody else knows he's Odysseus. He has proven that he's Odysseus. Mm -mm, not her. <laughs> so, <laughs> she asks him a thousand questions. And among them, of course, the most important question, uh, which only two of them know. So she is sure that he is Odysseus, not, not somebody, someone else. So it's such a, such a cool mind, such an organized mind, who also lets, uh, lets her son, Telemachus, um, to behave like a patriarchal man. Uh, and she taught him to be that. But then when he says, mother, the place for women is um, in the back room and so on and blah, blah, uh, she doesn't uh, criticize him. She said, okay. I suppose she said, uh, my, my job has been done. <laughs> I made the man out of you and so on. So she's both cynical, both rational, both uh, a woman in serious age in love. Everything is there. She's really wonderful, absolutely wonderful uh, person. And what I like uh, especially is that early presentation of a love affair which lasts for years, a marriage, which is, well, it's possible, even if he... Uh, flandered around for 20 years and slept with goddesses and sirens and who knows what. Not always <laughs> under his own volition. He was sometimes <laughs> enchanted, <laughs> which yeah. would, I don't think be no. a, a serviceable excuse <laughs> for all, any of you husbands <laughs> out there listening. <laughs> and the other person I like very much is Praxagora from, uh, from Women in the Parliament, Ecclesiazuse. And uh, she is a teacher of women uh, who, are, um, who are preparing for their presentation uh, in the parliament. And uh, she, of course, teaches them how to behave, not to mention female goddesses, not to mention anything from the women's world, and so on and so on. So she is really a great activist, feminist activist, and I love her. But there are also many other women that I like. I like Helen so, uh, very much because she's so... Unbelievably immorals. <laughs> the face that launched a thousand ships. So tell us why. We, you know, sort of have a, a little bit of ambivalence. We look back yeah. with an ambivalent eye toward Helen, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. She was, we, we, um, I think we failed to appreciate um, some of those virtues that you just explained. And if you read Homer, she's not at all depicted as being um, an unvirtuous 
person, sort of a victim to to fate, really, above all. So, so why do you like Helen? I like Helen because uh, she's uh, uh, so demanding, and at the same time, she's a very wise woman. She's capable of seducing her husband after 10 years of infidelity with Paris, and his brother after Paris, and so on and so on. Uh, just by showing off her breast, that's enough for for her husband. That's and enough I, for most for most men. <laughs> <laughs> and what I really like is the scene in Odyssey, in which Telemachus comes to Sparta and uh, he meets Helen, and Helen is the wittiest, the, the warmest, the most elegant hostess that you can imagine. She knows how to behave, so I really love her for that. She can really play men. On, on all the angles, sex, uh, uh, beauty, and behavior, and uh, her social social graces and so on. So I really love her for that. And I want you to comment briefly on her half-sister, Clytemnestra. Mm -hmm. Well, Clytemnestra is uh, deprivileged by being mortal. Helen, in fact, is, is uh, supposed to be immortal. Well, she dies, but then there are so many versions of her death and of her being, in fact, a tree, a symbol of uh, uh, fertility and so on. But Clytemnestra, on the other hand, is a very honest woman. And uh, uh, what she does is to, to revenge, to make revenge on Agamemnon for many crimes he did. And many crimes are first killing her first husband, and then, of course, uh, being responsible for Iphigenia's death. That's the worst she wanted to be a real wife. She wanted to, to uh, be normal, let's say. But when the father decides to, to sacrifice his own daughter, she turns into a uh, adventure. And the affair with uh, Aegisthus and everything else and the killing of Agamemnon, that's her other part. That's her diabolic part, if you, if you want, which was caused by the men's behavior. Yeah. So she is an honest woman who turns bad because uh, immense, uh, immense crime, uh, crimes have been committed uh, against her. And I think it's that turn that that draws my affinity toward her. I <laughs> between the two, if I had to choose, maybe this says something about my personality and my character. But if I had to choose between Helen and Clytemnestra, just as figures of, of literature. I'm inclined to choose Clytemnestra. There's something very upstanding, yet also mm -hmm. completely depraved about her. And the fact that um, she is such a defender of her sacrificed daughter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, of uh, the, the husband by whom that unforgivable sin was perpetrated is, is ennobling in some ways. But then the way in which she goes about Securing her revenge, mm -hmm. the yes. slaughter of Cassandra and the slaughter of her husband is yes. is cripplingly terrifying. <laughs> um, oh, <yeah. laughs> do you? Let me ask you now: if mm -hmm. you could, if you could pluck one of these mm -hmm. female characters mm -hmm. from their the Greek myth in which they originally belong, right in that story and and place them in a Shakespearean story, mm -hmm. who would you pluck? And in which Shakespearean tragedy or comedy would you place her? Mm -hmm. I would replace Juliet with Medea. 
That's that would be an interesting substitution. How might that story play out? Uh, basically, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet are a wonderful drama, but uh, when you analyze what is the plot and what is the problem there, it's only sex, excuse sex, and nothing else. So, <laughs> how to avoid bans? How to uh, how to make sex? How to have sex? And uh, how to, to end the story when there's no more possibility. That's extremely simple. Although they, they're both very witty and the dialogues are absolutely uh, sublime. But in fact, it's very simple. So if the Romeo, which is a kind of mature guy, he's not a boy. He's uh, uh, an adult uh, without any social responsibility. <laughs> so <laughs> if he met me there, that would be a wonderful possibility to make him real man to make him really suffer, really uh, fight for his love, uh, really lose his social position, and so on and so on. He would not escape, but at the end he would not wish to escape, but on the contrary, he would like to, to uh, present himself and Medea as a couple which is uh, ready for the social uh, situation, which is, uh, if you want, valued as, as, as a couple. Uh, there wouldn't be a secret. He would fight to to not to become uh, a secret secret lover, not at all. So the whole thing would be to for him to well change society, to adapt society to his love and his couple and his affair and so on. So I would love to see that couple. Have you considered that question before? It sounds as though you were prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, not exactly, but I was thinking about a film that really fascinated me. It's a film. Uh, it's a film uh, made in '36, and uh, Romeo is played by Leslie Howard, and uh, Julia is played by. Um, oh, now it, it slipped out uh, the name of uh, Norma Shearer. And they're both in their 40s. I apologize, dear friends and listeners, for that short interruption. It appears that Zeus, king of Olympus, uh, to whom we were inadequately supplicatory, decided to interrupt our chat by throwing down one of his vaunted mighty thunderbolts he must have been displeased by the profanity I uttered when I spoke of Karl Marx's likeness to the king of Olympian gods. <laughs> so I wanted to pick up where we left off in our discussion about Shakespeare. Um, now, Svetlana, you were telling me that if you could pluck <laughs> and move one character from classical Greek tragedy into the world of Shakespeare, you would have chosen Medea and you would have placed her into the context of Romeo and Juliet. And I think that uh, choice is absolutely extraordinary and one for which I was not prepared. <laughs> I think uh, had I the opportunity and the power to do so, I might have selected, uh, I might have selected maybe Penelope and, and brought her into the world of Hamlet. I feel as though he could have benefited from someone of as capacious an intellect um, and as sound a, a mind as as his, perhaps as a as a compliment to him. Um, but I want to 
to go and ask you about your favorite Shakespearean play. Don't you like it? That's I'm sorry, what was it? As you like it. As you like it. And for what reason? For the intelligent woman in it. Ah, very good. Very good. I really, really love Rosalind. I see. I see. And would you say that she is your favorite character in his oeuvre? Oh, absolutely. And uh, if we do the opposite, I would uh, um, join her with the Petronius. Ah, very good. In the opposite direction, of course. <laughs> we have an, uh, an interesting swapping of characters. Uh, um, so let me turn now uh, to feminism more generally. Of course, this has sort of been a, a topic about which we've been speaking for the past hour or so. Um, as we know, that feminism has taken many iterations, many different waves, so to speak. Um, you know, each pursued its respective end, be it suffrage or in, un, uh, employment equality to the accessing of, of uh, you know, admissions to university or, you know, inclusion in sports or in the military. Um, can you maybe explain to us um, where we are currently and what this more modern wave of feminism hopes to achieve that perhaps wasn't secured by the prior waves out of which it was born? Well, at this moment, I see feminism as uh, the older sister with uh, all the problems of older sister who has to deal with all the new movements and uh, identities and groups which appeared in the last five, 50 years, let's say. And uh, she has to be wise, she has to be helpful, and she has to be visible. These are the demands. And on the other hand, I see feminism in social movements today as uh, a huge bulk which can oppose capitalism, which can really work on, on uh, well, I wouldn't say despair capitalism, but at least reduce it to forms which are more humanly acceptable. So that would be feminist role. It, it's a huge role. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of fight. So modern feminism should not be uh, linked only to questions of gender and gender. Also would be there to help and to help building and to help differentiating. But on the other hand, that also the theory like that. And to make it, yeah, make it playable for people. Otherwise, it's actually capitalism was not meant to be I see. <laughs> uh, so today, it, it tends to be a really, really good test and uh, uh, perverse form of uh, social. I see. All and miserable and sick everywhere. I see, and I apologize. I'm... Uh, not hearing you entirely clearly, <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that perhaps could be on uh, my end. It could be what I'm receiving, 
So I'm I'm trying my best to to uh, to squint and to to strain and to hear as best I can. Um, but so I think I understood the in large part of what your you know your response to that. Um, but we've seen, especially in the West, and I don't know if it's as prominent an issue where you are in Slovenia and in, in that part of Europe. But you know, we've we've seen the rise of a, a totally new movement, at least so far as we understand it here, and, and that is of transgenderism. And it seems like, in many ways, that movement is a very serious and existential threat to everything for which a classical feminist um, fought. Uh, we now see the inclusion of, of biological men who declare themselves to be women to be accepted as such with very little um, demands on, um, on them to, to demonstrate their, let's call it their womanhood. So how does, or their professed womanhood, so how does a feminist in the classical sense, such as you, if, if you would declare yourself to be as uh, that, how do you view this new transgender movement that seems to be overtaking uh, America and maybe the European West more generally? It is overtaking uh, space globally. And uh, I wouldn't put uh, it as a problem. I think that transgenderism is the future. Uh, it is the future in which gender will be available if you want as an idea and as a realization. Temporarily, uh, not for the times, not for all this. So it is the future which feminism has to find its uh, own role. And uh, I think uh, this is completely uh, realizable, it's feasible, uh, and uh, in fact, it's only uh, to learn more about transgenderism in order to help them. Mm -hmm. So if I understand you correctly, you said that it is the future. I'm sorry, it's part of my some of the difficulty I'm having hearing you. It is uh, the future of the gender, of genders, the possibility of changing, the possibility of uh, temporarily changing, the possibility of uh, totally changing, radically changing, and uh, these uh, changing sexualities uh, will be the future. Will be the future. Do you do you not fear that that future might include basic annihilation of of what it means to be a woman? No, I don't think so. Uh, uh, if uh, uh, we have enough uh, liberty and equality, uh, there is no such problem for the future. Uh, enough liberty, enough democracy, enough uh, equality. That's extremely important, and social security. And in this situation. Uh, women will be free to, to be with me if they really want or change uh, to whatever they want. Hmm. And and how do you think about it in regard to, to sports, for example? That seems to be one of the the great sticking points in American discourse today, public discourse. Um, I would destroy commercial sports. You would prefer the sports go away? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, assuming assuming they they remain with us, and I think they probably will absolutely. in America. <laughs> the idea is to take everyone. I thought you might. I I thought you might be a, a champion of sports, being that they have such a strong <laughs> Greek uh, heritage and and they draw their their lineage from that. Well, the Greek sport was political. Let's face it. 
speaking political, and uh, was based on a completely different set of minds of, of ancient Greeks. Uh, today, I, I really hate commercial sports. I hate everything around it, all the disciplines, and I really, truly wish that sports should be available for everybody and it should be practiced as part of our enjoyment in life. But not commercialized, Absolutely. just for the pure for the pure enjoyment of them. And and health, of course, of course, and health. Huh? Why? I have to ask why. That is a that is an interesting opinion. I think that is unshared by a lot of people, and I've never considered the prospect of of uncommercialized sports. Maybe that's just because the the environment in which I grew up. I mean, that's all we've ever known: the the NFL, the football players, and the the MLB, the baseball players, and making huge contracts. But based on the fact that they're drawing a lot of eyeballs, people want to see them and they want to see great, great um, skill on the field or on the pitch. And in order to attract the best players, one would think that they have to be compensated for their efforts. So um, why, why would you distinguish sports from any other sort of business enterprise? Because it uh, awakes nationalism because it awakes bad emotions, because it uh, uh, proposes some of the rules and some of the uh, organizations of, of uh, competitions which are uh, rather uh, colonial and racist, and uh, because so much money is spent on them. That's simply disgusting when you hear about 200 million paid for a guy who has to take care of his legs most of the time and nothing else. Uh, I mean, it's 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 shameful. Mm. Uh, there are some players, of course, which give away money, uh, and uh, they are they are to be respected. But uh, the whole thing is about money and the guys, old guys who are behind the whole game. So I really don't like that. Uh, huh. I like the excitement. I think the, the women screaming at the games and so on. It's fun. But uh, if it's fun, it can be produced and can be reproduced without uh, this kind of money and without immorality and without all the nationalism and, and uh, hooligans and everything else which is uh, related to sports today. So and you... Unfortunately, it's based on, on something... I mean, just listen to the sportsmen uh, speaking. Yeah. I did so... it 100%. So would you support uh, a return to uh, the amateur qualification, right? Because amateur, it, it has its etymological roots in the word amateur, you know, amor, to, to love. And these were considered sportsmen who pursued their, their activity at which they had some expertise for the mere love of it. And they weren't expecting to, to bring home a hefty salary because of it. So would that be your preference? Maybe, I mean, it still doesn't address the problem of the nationalism, but would you prefer it that sportsmen, because there always will, I think, be sportsmen, just as there always have been, you know, going back into classical times and perhaps even earlier. But um, would, you prefer, would you prefer that style where it's maybe not compensated or, or at least compensated to a far lesser extent or maybe in a different way? Uh, maybe they receive their laurels, the, you know, their laurel wreaths, and and they, just as the Greeks did, didn't they? 
received sort of like some, um, you know, grain or, or some sort of reward for the, for the span of a year or something like that, would you prefer that sort of a model? No, this is not a real model. When they came back, I mean, the ancient athletes, the ancient Greek athletes, uh, they would get a, a ton of privileges uh, and the money and the monuments and everything you want when they came back. So it's not so naive and clean, <laughs> it seems not at all. Yes, the laurel for the Olympics, but when you go home, you get everything else. So this is not the idea. My idea is uh, that the state should finance sports, massive sports for everybody, uh, everywhere uh, where, where it is possible, competition too, and also for the sportsmen who have to, to train uh, for a long time, a certain kind of salary for that. So uh, the teams should be composed uh, on, on different criteria. Now they are international, but they play for a certain uh, for a certain team or for a certain city or for a certain nation, uh, of course. But the whole thing would be about making sports uh, massive, making available, and making payable for those who are really talented. And you get talented people only by uh, having uh, a certain social and uh, education without faith. That's the only way uh, to, to get talents. That's the only way to really get up, pick up those who, who will produce something sensational and then let them do it. They pay uh, their lives if they want to do it. And do not forget that most of the sportsmen just fade away after 35, for heaven's sake. What, what to do with them afterwards? The state should really care about these guys to give them another chance to give them another profession, but not 200 million for transferring to a different club. So, sports really is is a really dirty space, uh, a dirty part of our culture. If I would like to see and believe people. Huh, yeah, of which America is probably the chief exporter of the of that type of culture. <laughs> Are you? Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I've never considered it in so critical a, a way. So this is really um, enlightening to hear you explain it and in, in, in very soundly. Uh, would you say that you're more d distressed by or uncomfortable with the the profit motive or the the nationalistic? Um, sort of impulse that's that's created because of this. Both equally. Okay. All right, and of course we combine the two. Now, the the one thing, <laughs> the one thing, the one thing that I find uh, morally dubious uh, at the very at the very least is uh, the imposition on cities and countries to fund the Olympic Games every four years or so to to take on massive amounts of debt, basically for which the citizenry is going to be paying to, to, for many, many years to come to enable them to create these um, beautiful architecturally complex stadiums uh, and, and all these you know, hippodromes and all these mountains made of artificial snow and, and for the use of a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two. And, and then what? They basically collapse and in, in, into ruin, and they're never used again. Uh, you know, you see this in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, where years yeah. ago they hosted the Olympics, and then, of course, it was it is a financial boon to a certain extent while the events are going on. But then they're left with you know this crippling debt 
that has to be serviced somehow. And, and a bunch of people who really can't make use of these things in the middle of a favela somewhere where, you know, the, the people are scraping to get by and not really getting by. So I, I definitely acknowledge that as a problem, as an issue. Uh, but I, I do think there's something kind of like inborn in the, the human spirit that, that seeks competition and, and wants to, to engage in these athletic performances. And yeah, I don't know how that can be uncoupled with the, the current in, incentive structure where if you really want the best talent, you know, colleges and, and universities in America, this is a unique problem. You know, public, univers public universities are doling out thousands of dollars to enable their, co well, to pay their coaching staffs, but then to enable their coaching staffs to recruit the best players. And of course, there's always a little bit of, oh, morally, again, dubious behavior going on when the coaches are trying to incentivize these young 17 and 18-year-old men who might come from downtrodden economic circumstances to, to come into their university and 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 play for them for a certain amount of years before going on to even greater riches in the professional league. So yeah, there are there are some issues there, but I, I just don't know if we would see the best talent on the on the pitch or on the field. Uh, well, given that, what is your favorite sport? <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> well, uh, uh, swimming, of course, I like swimming. Mm -hmm. I like swimming when I was able to do that, and uh, uh, I like basketball. Ah, okay, very good. So to bring back the the, the yeah. sensitive, ticklish, sensitive, ticklish topic of of transgenderism, and maybe this will be the, my last my last comment on it, and then I'll let you have your piece. But taking swimming as an example in America and probably across the world, we had the story of the University of Pennsylvania swimmer, a biological male who I don't think has yet undergone any sort of surgical intervention to remove from him his virile parts, <laughs> to, yeah. put it, to put it mildly, um, you know, in, engaged in competition in the women's field and was quite successful, perhaps not surprisingly. So as someone who thinks that um, in the future, this will be sort of much more normal, uh, what do you think about that now? Because it doesn't, it seems to be an imperfect system where we're allowing at least one male, biological male, to, to compete in a field of, of women and, and to succeed and to be applauded for having done so. Perhaps uh, maybe a third category of, of transgender individuals could, could compete, you know, on their, on their own. What do you well, think? I remember that? the East German athletes who were really dubious of sex <laughs> <laughs> because of political reasons and so on. But I would remind you something. What is the meaning of sport and of physical uh, readiness? Uh, there is one thing that really took somehow the idea of Athenian democracy and what is necessary for a citizen, and that is waterboard. You remember that? that uh, uh. Uh, in that sense, the little girl is told to swim, to write, and to speak. So again, she speaks the epic story of her hero. So these are the three things that the Athenian citizens had to know. He had to swim because he had to serve as a sailor. He had to draw to know geometrics, to measure up things. And the third, he had to speak. He had to know grammar, rhetorics, and uh, he had to have style if he wanted to succeed. So these three elements are the elements of a citizen. And the little girl in that film really is the model 
all happy and democracy. That's why I really love that because it clearly out of nothing came out this, this model, which is uh, obvious for, for the, the direct democracy. So yes, yes this combination of physical uh, capacity, uh, literacy, uh, grammar and style would be ideal for a modern citizen. And I don't see it uh, in uh, completely utopian uh, dimensions at all. Yeah, no, and that doesn't sound like it's asking for, for too much of our of our governmental institutions to be able to read the citizenry on those three pillars. And uh, again, I think we've gotten far away from that and have forgotten those those lessons that our Athenian democrat democratic forebears have uh, imparted to us through uh, through the ages. So I, I spoke briefly about the, the the inborn sort of desire to be competitive. I want to shift to another um, another something that is inborn, and that's specific to to Americans, and that is our constitutional right to speak freely, and that's of course a right around which our First Amendment to uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is uh, erects a, a, a strong and inviolable wall. Now, it's not only that we have the right to free speech in America, but that Congress can enact no law that will even abridge it. So it's, I think, um, a very significant um, distinction to make and, and to, be, uh, to be aware of. But as someone who grew up in a country in a time that didn't especially value uh, freedom of speech, and maybe when speech was decidedly unfree, um, how do you understand the concept of freedom of speech? And would you consider it the most important of all human rights? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that was the most important uh, value of the human right. Like, uh, human right, no, not at all. But uh, I, I was living in a country in which uh, freedom of speech had to be conquered. And in the 70s, especially in 80s, after the president Peter died, uh, this uh, space of freedom has been opened, and um, in the 80s, I was even the uh, director of the uh, Serbian Writers uh, Union Committee for the Freedom of Expression. And I was writing petitions and uh, going into polemics and so on and so on, depending on the, the possibilities. And uh, our idea of freedom of the speech, of course, was based on uh, intelligent speech. So to put it, uh, criticism of the regime, uh, but powerful criticism of the regime with arguments, uh, with uh, all the possibilities that uh, academics uh, can, can have, and so on and so on. So it was a fight for the intelligence speech. Then I came to the States in 1993, and my colleagues in the States taught me a lesson, which was extremely important, that it is, uh, of course, it is uh, important what is said, what is the, the continence of the freedom of the speech. But on the other hand, there are things that are supposed not to be said. And that freedom of speech also comprises things that have not to be said or must not be said because they force turbulence and human suffering. So I learned my lesson. I came back and I uh, ended in a campaign in which uh, freedom of expression today is extremely important. Uh, the, in fact, it's a, 
uh, it's a main political question today in Slovenia because the right wing and the neo fascists, which are present in Slovenia, especially the, the, the sturdy right wing type of Orban, the president of Hungary, is the ideal, so you understand the thing, the situation. This right wing introduced seven years ago a number of media which were financed first by Hungary and then by some other sources, not always transparent, in which uh, blaming people for race, gender, religion, uh, ethnic origin, so on, is a common thing. It's a, it's a dirty speech, it's a cloaca speech, really, and cloaca maxima in many ways. <coughs> and this is concerned freedom of speech. It's not freedom of speech. The freedom of speech, in fact, to be free, has to be limited. It's a paradox, but it does concern the today situation in which even people uh, which are on high places in the world uh, allow themselves to say horrible things about others, about everybody. They are ready to, to, uh, to really uh, demean everything that they take into their mouth. So freedom of speech is a completely different, different problem from the time that I was engaged and punished basically for, for defending the freedom of speech. So what we have to do is thinking about education, literacy, and the education of the Athenian citizen, the simple one, which would lead us to the situation in which nobody would feel urged to use horrible language, dirty language, attacks, uh, and so on and so on. So that's what I think about freedom of speech today. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a sentiment, I think, with which a lot of people would agree. Um, yeah, I've always find it interesting to uh, to speak with someone such as yourself who kind of stands astride two, two worlds or has stood astride two worlds um, where, as you noted, the, the concepts of that fundamental right are very different, right? The European model of or an understanding of free speech or speech is, is quite different. And take England, for example, there, you know, there's no written constitution where such a right is protected and it's not understood in the same way. Whereas in America, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a cherished right, um, you know, on which a lot of people are, are reliant for their livelihoods, be it, you know, commentators or writers or what have you. Uh, do you think that in any way it stifles the creative output of a of a people or of a nation to have these maybe soft or not so soft limitations on what they can or can't say, even if it is egregious or um, uncouth? <laughs> well, one thing is the American model free speech as it's written in the Constitution, which is absolutely the model that, that everybody follows. But on the other hand, you have today's situation, and not only uh, in the United States, but everywhere, that uh, saying a lie doesn't bring any punishment at all. It doesn't matter at all what you speak. So <coughs> people allow themselves to speak uh, unbelievable things, which are not true, which are lies, which are defamation, which are uh, simply dirty language, and nobody cares. Nobody, nobody punishes these people, even if they are presidents of the states, and so on, and so on. So that's a problem, really. Uh, I would really be for the, if you want, uh, renovation, a new reading, a new European reading of the American 
constitution, that would help a lot. But mm. on the other hand, the, the situation is not, not better. It, 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 it's not even worse in the United States, but where we come to this, this low area, which, which really threatens people to kill us all. Because it's, it's about the violence. These words produce violence. There's no doubt at all. And again, one of my great changes in life in the 70s, 80s, I was a great European believer in the separation of the author and his work. Not quite, quite other theories, you know, the author is not responsible for his work, was a believer, which is disowned, and so on and so on. And we were very happy with it because we could use this argument in Yugoslavia at the trials of people who were uh, tried for saying or writing something. You know, say to a judge, the author cannot be responsible for his text. It sounded perfect. Some judges even accepted that new theory. But you, now we are in a different way. Was there, different. was there a specific example of that happening? Oh, the, many of them. Many of them, yeah. Is there, is there one that's especially resonant to you? Do you remember one vividly? Oh, of course, I remember at least three uh, trials in Belgrade in which poets were accused of saying something which was understood as, uh, uh, well, wrongfully uh, directed against the regime. Okay, so we come to the uh, court and the lawyer says, but the author is not responsible for his, for his work. Look at Humberto Eckert's theory, and so on and so on. And Buddha, we had great fun in doing so, because it was already, the situation was such that you could write publicly about it. And most of these trials after papers, they just crumbled. They didn't uh, finish because uh, people could not believe anymore that anybody could uh, offend the regime with, with some words or with poetry, whatever. So the situation changed in nationalism and in the days after the before, during and after the Yugoslav War, where words really, when words really meant something, it says that words were leading young men to the cross to kill there's co-citizens and so on. So yes, the words became words at a certain stage, but simple words. I've always been perplexed by by the history of Yugoslavia, and I, I think you could I could be pardoned. As, a, <laughs> as as an American, it, it's not very thoroughly um, detailed in our curricula um, as you come up through high school and in university, um, unless you pursue a, a like a Balkan specific course of study. Um, so it seems to be that in in the Balkans, there's a there's a heightened sensitivity about nationalism. And I think we understood just the way saying, just the way we maybe understand the freedom of speech a little bit differently in America. Uh, I think we understand nationalism differently in America, being that we're, we're such a large continental nation with so many regional idiosyncrasies um, and characteristics um, that it, that it, it's hard for us to conceptualize this, area that has gone through in Eastern Europe that has gone through so many uh, upheavals and, and changes and, and has experienced the, the drawing of new borders and new lines and so many ethnic groups 
and religious groups, as you mentioned earlier, kind of being at once in close proximity and, and perhaps uh, with um, animosity toward one another. So how should the unschooled American understand the maybe the, the modern short history of the Balkans and how that influences your understanding of uh, nationalism? Uh, with difficulties, I must say, I met many uh, Americans with uh, really open minds who had problems understanding it. Uh, the whole thing is uh, about the nationalism, which was invented in the Balkans in the 19th century, not before, in fact, in the second of the 19th century. So, so it's new invention. Uh, Balkans before, of course, have a multitude of ethnic groups, multitude of languages. It's it's almost like an in, like the Indian Peninsula. It's hundreds of languages, hundreds of dialects, hundreds of, of, of ethnic groups, which sometimes are professionally uh, determined and so on and so on. So, and in the Balkans, you cannot survive. You could not survive if you didn't know several languages. That's the Balkans, and also good part of so-called Central Europe. So in this situation, forming nations, forming states, the whole thing about the nation and the states is a political fight for territory, for the state, for the new position in Europe, and so on and so on. So uh, taking away this, this narrative of, of the community, uh, of the national community, is coming down to, in fact, with the example, which, which is very dear to me because I live for it, and that is the Yugoslav dissidents, which was against the regime, and where I was uh, living for 30 years or more, uh, wanted uh, the freedom of expression and the respect, respect of human rights. These were the political problems. Of course, we were thinking about the multi-party uh, system and so on, but that was technicality after once we achieved this. Uh, and then, uh, after the death of Tito, uh, a new narrative appeared, and uh, most of the dissidents uh, went into a different concept in which the collective, the history, and the nation were the most important. So individual rights, human rights, everything is lost. Only the collective is important. And in the collective, of course, you can work on your own political career, you can work or you can use narratives to pull people, to make propaganda, and so on and so on. So the whole thing is a product of the politics of the 19th century, late 19th century, in which Balkan and Central European states were fighting for independence and taking models of great nation states like France, Great Britain, and so on and so on, in forming their own structure. And this structure had, had a, a problem with the national, because national was the only narrative that was available. So the ancient myths were changed, to serve national myths. The literature, oral literature especially, was changed in meaning to serve national goals. The whole revolution happened, and unfortunately, it was not well reported by historians. That's a real problem, because we in the Balkans, in the school system, we were uh, learning about the whole world. I remember lessons about Indonesia. I remember uh, the lessons about the American War for Independence. I remember remember the history of Canada from my high school years. This is not the case in, uh, in Western Europe or in the United States. People do not learn 
globally because they they uh, this is considered to be privilege and punishment of small nations and the whole concept of small nations which are not known nobody knows you remember uh, English politicians in '39 they were speaking of Czechoslovakia as a uh, country far away for heaven's sake it's one hour flight <laughs> today it was maybe three hours flight then. But uh, uh, the whole thing is about uh, cultural colonialism, which is uh, uh, rooted deeply into the Western, the so-called Western uh, civilization. I don't know exactly what Western civilization is. I can't find so many parallels between the French, Italian, Spanish, Greek, especially Greek, Turkish uh, uh, construct of narratives. They're so close, so similar, so parallel. So nationalism, and the political fight for, uh, let's say, power in a small state, that's the reason why we don't understand Balkans. Otherwise, Balkans is, is perfectly clear with its multilingualism, multiculturalism, uh, its cooperation between small nations to survive. And I uh, repeat once more, the ideal nation was, to became familiar with the Balkans only in the second part of the and do you think? And do you do you think that um, this cultural colonialism um, of which you speak is that a natural outgrowth of nationalism? Because it sounds like you know, maybe in some ways those terms c conflict. In some ways, I think cultural colonialism. I think imperialism, and um, that yeah. sounds like to be like it's almost the opposite to. Uh, nationalism or perhaps the cultural colonialism or the economic colonialism is i think as maybe some marxists would argue maybe the highest form of capitalism so how do you understand those two those two terms and, and their relationship to one another uh, to one to one another basically they are interchangeable <laughs> let's face it uh european countries uh, have had the colonies in outside world the west indies and other imaginary territories, which they name after their uh, very imaginary uh, utopian ideas about the world. And uh, when you think about how easily the colonial mind is naming concepts and things, I will give just one example. Uh, when the, the uh, import from the Americas became expensive, and uh, highly risky because of the wars and of the pirates and so on. Uh, Europe has found a new way to get the colonial goods, and that was via Turkey. And the cheaper way was to travel through the Balkans, so by, by land, not by the sea. So the whole thing suddenly changes at, at a certain moment, uh, basically in, in 16th century and then in the 17th century, and uh, suddenly you have the cases like, uh, what is the name of a bird which comes from the Americas to Europe uh, and is eaten for, um, for American festivities? Well, it's Turkey. It's a Turkish bird, for heaven's sake. There is the, the complete confusion. Not a, very nobody... not a very flavorful one, I will add. <laughs> so nobody cares about the real origin, the real history, about the... the, the Real maps, if you want. Everybody cares about getting stuff, painful stuff, as as uh, little as possible, 
and then using it. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the name is, because you can use any name. Tendency is the same. Getting some something for someone who is miserable enough to sell it. It's the same spirit of colonialism, which now goes into a completely different direction. As as someone who reveres uh, the the culture of uh, you know classical Athens, wouldn't you want that culture exported to the rest of the world? In other words, do you not uh, do you not perceive some of the benefits that are um, concomitant with with these cultural artifacts being moved about the world. I mean, I don't mean to say imposed by force necessarily, but like, wouldn't you want a, a small boy in China, let's say, to be able to pick up, um, you know, Sophocles's Oedipal trilogy and, and read that and be enriched by it? Or would you not want, you know, the Lysistrata to fall into the hands of a, of a young girl in Botswana who, who can then, you know, take this relic of Western culture and hopefully improve herself and edify herself. That's, that's how I, maybe in my too Pollyanna-ish or optimistic view, that's how I see what you describe as cultural colonialism. Uh, what I hope it's not, and in often cases it turns into this, is sort of the baser, meaner, totally, um, well, commercialized exportation from America to other countries of certain uh, habits of mind that maybe aren't so aren't so edifying, but at its best, I think the cultural colonial project is that those young children being able to immerse themselves in great works of literature, of which the the Western mind, let's say, uh, is is the the parent. So, how do you think about that? But of course, that's not cultural colonialism. That's a uh, legacy. That's cultural legacy. And cultural legacy of ancient Greece is, is uh, equally important in China and uh, Botswana as, as in, in, let's say, uh, Macedonia or anywhere else. Uh, so this cultural legacy should be spread. And uh, unfortunately, we, we also build with the cultural colonial in the cultural legacy in the sense that many, let's say, specialists in, in, in Great Britain or in Germany or in France think that uh, people from Central and Eastern Europe or China should not be specialists in ancient studies. <laughs> mm. And ancient studies are so international, they are so important for every culture of, of this planet that this is an idiotic idea. But I witnessed that uh, in the debate, uh, some, let's say, a couple of years ago, when many classicists appeared as horrible conservatives in the case of the name of Macedonia. So <laughs> they were completely unable to hide their their self uh, self esteem, their, their their idea that they they are the only who can uh, deal with ancient studies and ancient cultures. And very often, I can tell you, they also deny Greeks the possibility of understanding their own early past. So we have a problem. We have a real problem. Cultural colonial colonialism inside cultural legacies. 
And of course, the, the cultural legacy of ancient Greece uh, is still that and it is global because it translated into Chinese, many Chinese dialects. It is performed on uh, Chinese stages. I remember, I remember a very good uh, media, Chinese media in Athens some 30 years ago, but it was excellent. It was very original, it was greatly done. So, yes, ancient Greece and the qualities of ancient Greek culture, which are based on, on certain forms of democracy and even on some form of much lesser democracy, which is uh, Roman Republican uh, arrangement. Yes, these are the things which have to be global. They are the cultural legacy of the world. And there should be no difference between a philologist from Baku and a philologist from Baku. Yeah. There yeah. is. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the um, the pursuit of the classics by, um, in let's say, an Asian uh, scholar, for instance. I'm reminded of, you know, some of the great um, classical pianists and violinists and uh, musical performers uh, are, are are Asian. Over, I mean, overwhelmingly in the West, and I think that's a great thing. I, I think it's a marvelous thing. And and again, I think that it is the talent and the skill that uh, are employed at very young ages to be able to cultivate, you know, an ability to to play the sonatas of, you know, Beethoven or <laughs> the symphonies of Mozart. Um, that is that is so wonderful. But I but it is a it is a legacy from a very specific culture. I I, I grant that it is universalized and universalizable, but you know, it had to it had to come from somewhere. And I yeah, I, I don't think that um, should be overlooked as we acknowledge the, the, the greatness that is disseminated on, on the world because of those origins. Um, so how, uh, maybe you could give us, you know, an example of, uh, well, you know, no, I, I'll, I'll avoid that. I was going to ask you maybe to give us an example of cultural colonialism, um, working, in a deleterious way, in a way that might not be so salutary. But I think I, I basically outlined that <laughs> in talking about some of our exports um, to the rest of the world. Uh, maybe uh, I could ask you this, uh, and just briefly, when we were talking about the freedom of speech, I regarded it as, if not the fundamental human right, maybe one of them. But you, you indicated that you don't think it is the most, the most important human right. What would you say is the most important human right? Uh, life. Life. Sure, sure. And maybe you um, can yeah. en enlarge on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which also they goes to extremities today, really dangerous extremities. Uh, but uh, let's say. Uh, the panel, uh, death penalty, which is the law today in the European community. And uh, nobody can enter the European community with uh, this uh, death penalty in their rules. So this is extremely important. But on the other hand, it's also freedom of women to decide about their bodies. It's the uh, same. Right. And today in Slovenia, we have a horrible, horrible, negative discussion about euthanasia. Uh, so so the people who are for the death penalty and uh, against the abortion are uh, against euthanasia and they're against. Well, we have two, two different 
uh, ways of thinking globally. And one is how to diminish, how to shorten, how to destroy human rights. And the other is how to enlarge human rights, because the list is not complete. There are many items of the list which, uh, which really have to be brought in, like uh, the right of settlement, the right of the right of, uh, the right of, uh, the right of because for the sign of cruelty of men against men. So there are many, many rights which we should include and think about them, not to diminish or to shorten the list. And are you encouraged by the way in which, or the direction in which, uh, the Western world is moving in the in the protection of these rights, or are you discouraged by what you see? Uh, at this moment, I'm really discouraged <laughs> because many countries do show um, that uh, intentions which are in favor of that penalty, physical punishment, torture, uh, imprisonment, and, and other other uh, actions against the rights which are. So I'm not a great I see. I see. So I. You've been extraordinarily generous with your time, and I know we've run into a, a, a few interruptions, technological interruptions, of which our viewers and listeners will have only a small amount of awareness as they watch this. <laughs> <Yes. and laughs> with the magic, with the magic of iMovie and some editing tricks, they'll 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 see a seamless transition from <laughs> the point at which we come out and the point at which we find ourselves at this very moment. Um, I told you prior to our recorded conversation that I could speak with you for, for many hours, <laughs> many days, and just uh, absorb the wisdom that you have to offer. And I, I still hold to that. I, I, um, I feel like I've only scratched the very surface of, of your intellect, which might be unfathomable, which might be unfathomable, which might be unfathomable. Um, so I thank you for that. Uh, maybe we can leave our listeners and viewers with, with this. And that is a piece of wisdom that you derive from your studies of antiquity. One piece of wisdom that can be imparted to the current present hour, you've lived a long life, you've seen a great deal of upheaval, of change. Um, and you have this knowledge of antiquity, which uh, educates one in the fact that things are constantly changing. So, so maybe by that metric, things really don't change all that much at all. Um, but there must be some permanent eternal truth that you that you learned from the past that might be applicable to uh, in this current day. So we'll, we'll end on that. What would be that piece of wisdom uh, with, with which we can improve ourselves in the current hour? Well, we don't compromise what, uh, with uh, what we've learned. Don't make compromise. <laughs> and the other would be that democracy is uh, fragile, but it's fragile because it has to be changed all the time. 
so impact it's so stable. And I wonder why it's not applicable to direct humanism. Because it's stable in changing. I see. So it's the fragility of democracy and the uncompromising um, uh, ways of your of your grandmother and your father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many ways, yeah. The employment of their hard-headedness. Well, Svetlana, again, I, I can't express to you enough my gratitude for, for your having joined me. I know it was difficult circumstances and we're thousands of miles apart in many hours. And again, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I'll be sure to link to any possible writings that might be available from you. I know that you and uh, a prior guest of mine, to whom I'm also very grateful, uh, Noah Charney, are, are currently working on a book, a forthcoming book called Slavic Myths or Detailing Slavic Myths, to which I'm really looking forward. Uh, I, I almost wanted to talk about that now, but I'll have to invite you back on and, and, and we'll dedicate an entire episode to that because... Again, just the, the I have no knowledge of, of a Slavic myth, so I, I, I'm very eager to learn about them. So I'll be sure to to link to that once it's once it's published. Um, but are there any final parting words that you'd uh, like to to give us? I have fun, and I have had the feeling that uh, uh, some things were said by both of us, which clarify uh, some mysterious aspects of, of global understanding of cultures. <laughs> Ancient culture in a slightly different light and Balkans in a slightly different light in a different light. So that's enough for a, that's quite enough for a, for a conversation, I think. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And you said that perfectly and eloquently. So with that, I will bid everyone farewell I am, again, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran, bidding you adieu from Finneran's Wake.